Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last week, AJC CEO David Harris led an AJC delegation to a number of refugee reception centers on the border of Ukraine and Poland, where nearly two million Ukrainian refugees have fled the Russian invasion. Over three days, David, his chief of staff, Jillian Laskowitz, our social media director, Julie Lenars, and the acting director of AJC Central Europe, Sebastian Rayek, delivered supplies and met with Poland's government officials to express solidarity. Also on the trip was Aldona Zavada, who joined AJC Central Europe just four months ago. Aldona is joining us now from Warsaw to share the incredible story of how that delegation helped a mother and son unexpectedly and how her own family has stepped up to welcome Ukrainians seeking safety. Aldona, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. So our colleagues were there with you for three days, and what a full three days. Can you tell us a little about that experience? Yes, we met in Warsaw with David Harris, Julian Laskowitz, and Julie Lennartz, and Sebastian Reck, who is the acting director of AJC Central Europe, and I. We all went to different border crossings, Dorohusk and Zoshin, and to uh, refugee reception points. And we were delivering humanitarian aid that we gathered for those crossings and reception, refugee reception points. And on our way back, we saw big groups of Ukrainians arriving. So we had some space in our transportation. So we decided to stop and offer transportation if someone was in need. So in total, we helped 12 people. That was women and children. And I was on the bus with David, Jillian and Julie. And we were driving one older lady back to Lublin, which was on our way to Warsaw. Um, She had her son pick her up from there. Her son lived and worked in Poland. And we met Svita and her 14-month-old son, Kirill. They were standing in the cold. They wanted to go to Warsaw. They came from a town called Zhytomyr, which which, uh, is in a very difficult situation. Svita left five sisters and her parents behind. She said with the planes over her head and constant explosions, she just had to take her son and go. And she was trying to get to Spain, to a town in the south of Spain where her sister lived. And she said, oh, I would just want to go to the central railway station. But it was late. She was exhausted, terrified. And immediate reaction of David, uh, Julie, and uh, Jillian was that she can't travel the same night. She has to rest, you know, we need to help her. So they found her accommodation for the night in, in one of the Warsaw hotels. And as we were on our way back to Warsaw, I was just researching, because there's a lot of Facebook helping groups in Poland where just strangers unite and offer different sorts of help. So I was trying to search for transportation to Spain. So I managed to find them a bus 9 a.m. next morning, leaving for Madrid. And once they got to Madrid, a friend of a friend of a friend of mine, again, power of social media, who was in Madrid, picked them up from where they were dropped off, took them to the main railway station where they left them in good hands of Red Cross, which was very well organized. And they helped her to provide further transportation to where her sister was. 
So I was in touch with her throughout this entire journey and updating David, Jillian and Julie and Sebastian because they were constantly worried and asking, how is Svita? Where is she? Is she okay? And as we were leaving her for the night in that hotel, um, before I picked her up the next morning, David speaks Russian. So he was speaking to her in Russian and she kept on saying, I don't understand what's happening. Why is this happening in my country? Why is Russia doing this to us? Why do I have to leave everything behind? And we just left that room that night completely wrecked, you know? There's no words to express something like this. Could have been any of us, you know? But yes, thankfully, with the support of AJC and social media, she's now safe with her sister in Spain, but still worried about the family she had to leave behind. So we all pray for them. And she said that she will never forget our faces and us because she feels feels incredibly lucky that she met us. It was the first time she ever left Ukraine, in fact. So just imagine the tragedy of that. But hopefully when her family is safe, then it will be like a complete happy ending. Because now, although she's safe, it's not a happy ending because the family is torn apart. Your own family provided accommodations for refugees. In fact, you convinced your parents to move in with you there in Warsaw, so their apartment was available as a home. How did you convince them? Well, you know, I am what I am because of them being who they are. So I think it's in the family. We all have, they have huge hearts, you know. So um, I don't know, it was maybe a 15 minutes discussion where we just heard that the war broke out and we heard about the first refugees coming in. And immediately I said, I want to have somebody, host somebody. And and then we just thought of different options for those refugees to be more comfortable because it would be a lot more comfortable um, for them to have like a private space, not live with me. So we decided that my parents will move in with me and like that we would be able to give the entire apartment to, to a family. Tell us about the mother and children who moved into your parents' home. It's a 40-year-old mother and two children, an 11-year-old girl um, and a 13-year-old boy. And they uh, come from a, from a town called Ruvne. The mother was the one to make a very fast decision um, on Friday, 25th of February. She said they heard the first sirens uh, in their town, which meant that they were supposed to hide. And she just knew that uh, she doesn't want to wait. She knew that the longer they wait, the the, the bigger the chance that something dangerous will happen to them. And she said she wanted to protect her children from seeing the actual war. They got here uh, on Sunday. They are unbelievable, you know. They had to leave their entire life. She, She had to pack everything into suitcases. She thought of everything. She was able to even cook lunch for the children on the way. You know, she had one of those portable, like, kitchens with with gas. Um, uh, So she really thought of everything, which made me think, my God, if I had to pack in two hours, would I even know what to take, you know? I have no idea. It makes you ask yourself questions that you never thought you would um, have to. and so they got here and the first thing, of course, they were they were resting um, because they were exhausted. And then uh, we were trying to figure out the next steps. There was some 
things we had to organize for them, like doctor's visits, uh, because the children were taking medicine and they didn't have prescriptions. We wanted to organize fun things for the children, me and my family and my friends, because we knew that um, somebody who is in such trauma, it's good to occupy their, their mind with different things. So we organized, um, me and my brother, we organized a um, football um, club for, for, for the boy. And uh, we organized dancing classes for the girl and visits to different museums, uh, shopping, all these kind of things that you do with your family on the weekend, you know. Um, uh, and uh, we started to look for the job for the mother. She wrote her... Um, uh, she wrote down her CV in Ukrainian and then I had an, a friend of mine translate it in, in Polish. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were meeting every day, eating breakfasts together, spending time talking. Um, she was telling us about uh, her life in Ukraine and she was um, very eager to adapt to Poland as, as fast as possible. Besides her husband, who's not allowed to leave Ukraine under martial law, what kind of life did Irina have to leave behind? You mentioned organizing dance and soccer activities for her kids. Yes, her daughter, Darina, she was uh, dancing since she was two or three years old. So so she was doing acrobatic dance, actually, and she was going to championships and doing really, really well. So I could see her, like, you know, even in the house, she was constantly, like, moving about. I could see so much energy in her that we tried to organize this dance class for her ASAP because this girl was just exploding with energy. And Daniel, yes, he was playing soccer in Ukraine. He was attending a local um, soccer club. So my brother's son is also uh, attending a soccer club in Warsaw. So so they got connected and... and um, uh, and they organized it for him. Uh, and Irina, she was, by education, she was uh, an economist. She worked for one of the local banks. She trained staff in, in client service. And her last job was uh, managing a fashion store uh, in a local shopping center. So she was very good with, and I could see that in, in her, that she was unbelievably well organized. And as soon as she rested a little bit in Poland, she wanted to get involved in helping other Ukrainians. So this is why she also joined our, you know, little um, crisis center uh, that we created with our friends. And, and she was letting us know of people who are uh, in need and, and we were coordinating everything uh, with her help. You talked about arranging activities for the kids and doctor's visits. It's not just opening the doors of your home, right? I mean, what other challenges did you encounter that you didn't expect? It's an incredible emotional slash psychological challenge, I think, because, uh, uh, I mean, people have different reactions for such situations. But for me, taking a family into our home meant that uh, we are responsible for them. So it wasn't just that I'm giving you a bed. I want to take care of you. I want to make sure that uh, you know what to do. I want to advise you well for your next moves. I want to make sure your children are healthy and they have medicine. I want to make sure um, you are not alone. I want to make sure you have food, all everything you need, essentials. It's an incredible responsibility. Uh, and uh, this is, I think this is a message that I would like to come across that what, what Poles are doing right now, 
opening opening their homes it's just such weight you know it's it's beautiful because we are making a change in somebody's life but uh it's 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 very heavy because at the same time we we don't know what tomorrow brings and uh and it's an incredible life lesson that we should never take anything for granted are there similar mechanisms popping up, emerging throughout Poland? Um, how has the community as a whole around you responded to this influx of refugees? Or is there really been a, 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 an outpouring around you? Are, are, are other people opening their homes and you know building these communities of support around the refugees? Or is this more of an exception? Oh, everybody is involved. Um, it's the first time in my life that I'm I'm witnessing uh, uh, such incredible involvement, in one way or another, either ho- uh, hosting or, you know, um, collecting things or helping with uh, schools, doctors, advice, or volunteering at railway stations, going to the border, helping with transportation. Every single person that I know personally is involved in one way or another. So you said, my parents are who they are. I am who I am because of my parents. It was a 15-minute conversation to decide to do this. What is it about your own family's history and Poland's history that inspires this kind of response to the need? We've had a lot of stories during the Second World War where um, my great-grandfather, who is on my mother's side, my great-grandfather from my mother's side, he was murdered in a concentration camp in Dachau in Germany. So my grandfather was separated from his father when he was only nine years old. And that has left an incredible trauma on my grandfather. And only a few years ago, I made a little family investigation where I've learned, as my grandfather never wanted to speak about it, but I started digging more when I was mature enough to dig into this. And I've learned that he hasn't been in only one concentration camp. I've learned that he's been moved around in three concentration camps. So Dachau, Sachsenhausen and Neuengamme. And at the very end, he's been transported because he got pneumonia. So he's been transported to Schloss Hartheim, which was a castle in Austria near near Linz, where they... um, put him in a gas chamber with with 100 of 100 other people and that has been the first location where uh, nazis were experimenting with with gas chambers and they they then moved this mechanism to to different concentration um camps so this wasn't like a prison they just they were just transporting people who were ill and unable to work and just uh, murdering them, mur- murdering them the same day, basically. So, um, so I've managed to contact the archives of all these different places where he was at some point, and they provided me with with documentation. And we made a like like a trip with my parents to see all of these places and see the castle in Austria where he's been murdered, which definitely brought us even closer. Um, together. I mean, we are incredibly close together, but but this story just made us realize so many different things. It We just couldn't help but think of everything he had to go through. And we were wondering about the people he met on their way, 
you know, you have so many questions arising. What if somebody helped him? What if he managed to escape somehow? Well, he didn't manage. He he um, he was murdered. But these things come back to you in in moments like this. You just think, you know, if if there is a way I, we can make a slightest change in somebody's life, you don't think. You just do it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that is very powerful, and I could see why your family would not think twice about lending a hand in this in this situation now. Is there a fear in Poland that Russia's aggression will reach further than Ukraine and reach beyond its borders? Well, I have that fear. Yes, people have a lot of fear. And, you know, you're trying to stay cool and trying to not panic and just observe and have a normal life because you need to have a normal life in all of this. And... I just watched an interview that the Warsaw mayor gave to CNN last night, I think. And the journalist of CNN asked him the same question. So he said that he is very thankful of the strong position of the US and NATO on this. And he knows that we are not alone in this. And if anything happens, we will be absolutely safe with all the support. So I think I'll stick to what he said, you know. I believe that we're not alone in this. I hope it doesn't happen. However, I'm sure Irina and her kids didn't think it would happen to them too. So I think, you know, we can't take anything for granted at this point. Aldona, thank you so much for all you and your family and your neighbors are doing. And thank you for sharing that story with us. Thank you. If you would like to help, you can donate to AJC's Stand with Ukraine Fund, which supports Jewish organizations providing direct humanitarian relief to Ukrainians. In the past week, AJC has made grants to Israel's efforts to assist refugees in Moldova and the Jewish Confederation of Ukraine's efforts to evacuate elderly Ukrainian Jews, including Holocaust survivors. AJC also has supported relief efforts provided by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, and today AJC enabled the Jewish Agency for Israel to sponsor a plane load of Ukrainian Jewish refugees from Poland to Israel. More information can be found at ajc.org slash support Ukraine and in our show notes. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me today is my colleague, Julie Lenars, AJC's social media director and influencer. Julie, we just heard Aldona talk about the AJC delegation that visited the Ukrainian-Polish border. You were part of that delegation. Tell us about the trip. Hello, Manya, and thank you for inviting me on the podcast. The first day we spent on the Polish-Ukrainian border, visiting multiple border crossings and refugee shelters. There, AJC delivered urgently needed humanitarian aid, such as non-perishable food, sanitary products, and chocolate for children. We also had a chance to speak to some refugees and to really see firsthand to experience for ourselves the devastating, absolutely devastating human toll that this abhorrent and illegal war has had on the refugees and their families. And you know what has really sort of stayed with me and is really haunting me are the children. Until just a few weeks ago, they were normal children. They were going to school, having playdates with their friends, dreaming about the future, and now they've been made refugees by the criminal actions 
of one man, Vladimir Putin. I have seen pictures drawn by some of these children. Some of the media outlets have kind of commissioned artwork from some of the young lives that are affected by this. And it really is quite heartbreaking and poignant to see these crayon drawings that paint a picture quite literally of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We know that almost 50% of the refugees are children and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And maybe one more note, during the trip, we also had a chance to go to a refugee shelter just outside of Warsaw, which is operated by the oldest Jewish organization in Poland. And the volunteers there also told us some really heartbreaking stories. We heard of a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor who was forced out of her home, out of her country by this war. And she stayed at the shelter for a few days until she was able to go to the UK where she has family. And I was actually so pleased and over the moon to hear when I read in an English paper the other day that she safely arrived in the UK and has been able to reunite with her family. Wow. So you were actually able to track her progress by reading it in the newspaper. Yeah. You know, when we came back, we were just obviously checking the news. And then I read somewhere of a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. And it's like, can't be so many, you know, 90-year-old Holocaust survivors staying at this one particular refugee shelter that we just visited a couple of days ago. And it turned out to be her. That's wonderful. You know, the power of the press in this conflict has really made I believe, all the difference, even unwittingly. I mean, watching that woman appear behind the Russian TV anchor to protest the war was so brave. I do hope she's safe. And the reporters who have died covering this conflict really bring it home that the Russian government would like to silence the truth, but they can't. They just, they can't. And then add to that the power of social media. I mean, President Vladimir Zelensky and the Ukrainian government, they have used social media masterfully during this war. They will not be silenced. They can't be. It's really quite extraordinary, which leads me to ask you, Julie, why were you chosen as the social media director? Why were you chosen to be part of this delegation? When we were in Poland and on the border, people really pleaded with us. And they said, don't go back home and forget us. Don't stop sharing the truth. Don't stop condemning Putin's war crimes. Don't stop telling our stories. Don't stop advocating on our behalves. And I think that social media plays a really critical part here, especially for AJC, because with over 3.5 million social media followers, we do have the largest following of any Jewish advocacy organization in the world. And no other organization in our space has been as vocal on Ukraine as has AJC. For example, through social media, AJC has collected donations for Ukraine, and we have mobilized thousands of people to write to their representatives and urge them to hold Russia accountable for its crimes, to impose crippling sanctions and other measures. And I can promise you right here that AJC will continue to use its social media in any possible way to stand with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people at its hour of need. And of course, it is important to also acknowledge that social media has a dark side to it. You know, we all see the misinformation out there. We see people using social media to share Putin's ludicrous lies that Russia has invaded Ukraine to denazify a peaceful and sovereign nation, a country with a democratically elected Jewish president. But at the same time, I think that we cannot lose sight of the fact that social media is also a powerful force for good. And... You just spoke to our colleague Aldona in Poland, 
And she mentioned this one concrete example from our trip. When we returned from the border with that young woman and her 14-month-old son, they were completely shell-shocked, devastated by what had just happened to them. And it was through Facebook and through social media that we were able, actually on the same night, on our journey back from the border, to book her a seat for a bus to Spain the next morning where her sister lives. And it was because of the power of social media. It was because of that connectivity, because of people using Facebook to help one another that she safely arrived at her sister's home on Monday. It really was a beautiful story. And it's a tangible example, an illustration of how we are all bound together. We are all connected. And I think that this war has certainly shown that and highlighted that for all of us. So thank you so much, Julie, for bringing us those stories and for for sharing everyone's story over there. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation between my guest host, Laura Shaw-Frank, and Poland's chief rabbi, Michael Shudrich, about the most pressing needs for Jews fleeing Ukraine and how he has been inspired by the Jewish community's unity during this crisis. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.